He's the man in the back of the room. Y con la voz de Dios. He's told U.S. presidents where to sit, CEOs where to go, and stars when to shine. But as he likes to point out, Who cares? I care. It's true, she cares. And so does he. He's entertainment and production agency owner and meeting and event master, Anthony Bellotta. She's his Agent 99, and you're about to be Bellottified. Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of Bellottified, the one and only podcast about events, entertainment, and engagement. I'm Anthony Bellotta, and I'm here every week, as I am, with the delicious, always optimistic, Alexia Cristina Postalidis. Good morning, Alex! Good morning. Happy Monday. It's a beautiful day. How are you? How was your weekend? Well, my weekend was great. And, uh, you know, I don't like to start by correcting people, but today's Tuesday. It is Tuesday. Oh, my God. You are absolutely right. I'm in the midst of final projects due, so there's not a lot of sleep going on. And Monday is really not a day to remember anyway. Monday, Monday, <laughs> Monday. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, I can't believe I did that. It is Tuesday. You know what? It's always the first and best day of my week when I get to see you. Aww, that was good. That was good. <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you need? <laughs> Just your friendship and support. That's all. <laughs> oh, that's that's a given. You have see? that every day of the week. Yeah, see. Every single day. <laughs> so what's, what's going on? What's on your mind? Let's get tipsy. Today's tipsy is all about the why. Because here's the thing. No organization, association, or doting parent has ever spent tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars simply for the pleasure of doing so. There is always a purpose to connect community, to celebrate accomplishment, to establish or reestablish a message or a direction. Whatever the reason, there is always a purpose for an event. And the North Star of the event and all the decisions around logistics, geography, timing, programming, design, and entertainment and engagement are made to support that purpose or goal. Now, some planners find it helpful to ask clients less about what they want their guests to see and more about what they want their guests to feel, especially as they're leaving the event. But whatever tactic you use, getting to the bottom of their event goal is key to creating an atmosphere that supports it. And remember, if the stated goal of an event is just to have a good time, even gaining clarity on why having a good time is important can help guide your event build out with the appropriate good time inducers. So staying focused on the why of the event will always lead you in the right direction. And that is Matipsy. Uh, and I like that you talked about purpose because, you know, my Yaya was all about purpose. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She, how would she, how would she put it? She would say, Apofieti ton fiavolo me costos. Which means? It means avoid the devil at all cost. And I say this because her main purpose in life was pro 
protecting her family. So we know there's many ways that you can do this. All you have to do is go back and listen to one of our other podcasts and you can find out how to protect yourself and your loved ones from the devil at all costs. Mm -hmm, Because that is exactly what Yaya spent her life doing. Absolutely. Her (laughs) entire life. (laughs) Her main goal in life. I love it. Okay, before we get started, if you're a new listener, please take this time to like and subscribe. Go ahead. We'll give you a sec. Why, thank you. So talking about purpose and goals, let's meet today's guest. (gasps) Yes, let's do. So our guest today is an incredibly diverse artist. He is a live event caricature artist specializing in digital caricatures. He's also a commercial illustrator and a fine artist. He is a master member of the International Society of Caricature Artists and in 2005 was named Caricature Artist of the Year and in 2011 won the title of Master Caricature Artist of the Year. And he's often commissioned to do caricature and portrait art, which you know. Yes, yep. And he was hired. I think this was last year. He was hired as a background painter on the Disney film Disenchanted. He's created movie posters and had his work published in the San Diego Tribune, the Washington Post, and Rolling Stone, Germany. But that's not all. He uses his talents to better our world, drawing caricatures from a database of children with rare genetic disorders for a group of university researchers who want to see if caricatures can help train clinicians and AI facial recognition software to better diagnose disorders using facial abnormalities. That's just so beautiful. Please, please, please welcome Mr. Court Jones. Mr. Court Jones. Hello. Hi there. Thank you for joining us on this side of the podcast. Uh, I We should just let the cat out of the bag. You are responsible for my beautiful caricature. That <laughs> is our logo and, and icon for the show. So thank you for being a part of it after two years, Court. It's been oh, wow. over two years. Yes. Yeah, I'm always delighted when I see that on my Instagram feed, my artwork pop up like, oh, there's Blotified again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's uh, the group loves the shot, loves the loves the caricature. I'm still coming to terms with it. But you know what? It is what it is. And it's a beautiful, beautiful caricature. It, it can is. be jarring sometimes to see them when they um <laughs> depending on how much I exaggerate, yeah. <laughs> so, Court, we start this program with uh, something we call 10 Quick Questions. 10 Quick Questions! 10 Quick Questions? Yay! Uh-oh. Here's how we do it. Uh, Alex has the clock, two minutes. I have 10 yeah. questions. Are you ready to go? Your first yes. first thing that comes to mind. Question number one. Court Jones, do you believe in fate? No. Okay. What do you love most about drawing people? Making them laugh. When was the last time you tried something new? I guess uh, a couple weeks ago, I had some new food. I can't remember what it was, but I didn't like it. (laughs) Okay, but you tried it. Yeah. That's all that we're asking. (laughs) You won't know until you try it. What's the first word that comes to mind when you think about you? Cyburns. 
Oh. I've had them for 30 years. I don't know. I've just never left the sideburns behind. After Beverly Hills 90210, they just became part of me. <laughs> sideburns. <laughs> Maybe that should be your nickname. Sideburn. <laughs> oh, I hope not. <laughs> uh, what is the most memorable live concert, show, or festival, theatrical event you've ever experienced? I'm sorry, what was the what? The most memorable live concert, show, theatrical event, or festival you've ever experienced. Oh, that would probably be Outside Lands up in San Francisco. It was just an amazing time. I was working at it, I was drawing caricatures at it. Um, and then I just got to hear all these amazing bands play in the background, like Stevie Wonder and Fun and Jack White. And just, I was this great soundtrack for like two or three days while I was working at this music festival. It was awesome. Wow, sounds like fun. Yeah. Who's the most interesting face you've drawn? Well, one of my favorite people to draw ever is Christopher Walken. I've never drawn him in person, but from photos, and I just love it. Face is amazing, and uh, I painted him and drawn him just so many times, I can't even count. He's sort of like my caricature muse. I think I've seen a few of those. They're terrific. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What's the one? What is the one thing you wish you could stop doing? One thing you wish you could stop doing? Snacking between meals. <laughs> I hear that's healthy. Is it? Okay, then I'll keep doing it. Is there any reason my caricature isn't on your website? Oh, uh, no. You know, I really should put it on there. I'm really proud of it, actually. So it's going to go up. Yay! <laughs> See, all you have to do is ask. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm terrible about that sometimes. I have a lot of work I've never put on my site, and I just forget to, to do it. You do have a lot of work. I can only imagine that site just shows just a, a, a speckle of what you do. What do you want to be when you grow up, Court? <laughs> Well, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a stunt hang gliding pilot, is what I thought when I was five years old, but I drew a picture of it. So I guess I didn't realize I really actually wanted to be an artist. So I'm gonna go ahead and keep on saying artist. That's great. Uh, that sounds a little uh, uh, specific. I'm gonna say that's oddly specific. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what put it in my head. I just thought that sounded cool, I guess. And lastly, is life about having what you want or wanting what you have? definitely wanting what you have that is a good answer court thank you for playing thank you and here we go yeah that's uh, exercising my brain what I thought so far well you know there's more <laughs> there's more to come uh oh so uh so you worked on the animation background of the film disenchanted uh as a painter background painter could you tell us a little bit about that experience yeah, yeah, it was something I never thought would happen. I never thought about working in animation. I never wanted to be an animator. And you know, I'm not an animator. I was just still doing paintings. Uh, but I had a friend who was working on the film, a guy I knew in the caricature world, a director, and he recommended me for the project. And he knew I did landscape painting just for fun. Like I just do a lot of landscapes around San Diego, around Southern California with oils. And I'm also a digital painter, obviously. So this was a good combination to work as a background painter for an animated film because it's all digital. You paint in Photoshop. Uh, so I worked uh, with some people, uh, worked directly with an art director. Uh, and initially it was really difficult to get the hang of it because the thing about background painting for animation is it has to look like every single painting was done by the same artist. And there are you know seven or eight other artists doing backgrounds. We all have our own different styles, our own different ways we like to use color. So learning the um, the look of the film was really critical. And it was a lot of trial and error in the beginning. Uh, but the art directors were very patient with me and helped me through the process being my first animated film that I worked on. I ended up doing like, oh, about 14 or 15 different backgrounds uh, from the film. 
And if you're not aware, the film is partly animated and partly live action. And of course, I just painted for the uh, animated portions. Uh, it was a lot of work, very, very detail oriented. You know, so many trees with so many leaves on them. I just, I'm really good at painting trees now, I think, because it was a lot of forests. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but uh, you start to develop um, techniques and I wouldn't say necessarily shortcuts, but ways of working faster. So I learned a lot from the process and I worked with some amazing people. And now I get to, you know, have my name on this thing for all time that I can be just really, really proud of. And uh, yeah, it, was, it ended up being really fun in the end. What was the process of ensuring that all the artists were were handling the the uh, artistry in the same way? How, how did that come together? Well, mostly work and trial and error. There's just a lot of feedback, like I said, from the main art directors who know what the film should look like. Plus, we did actually have the first film, Enchanted, uh, to work off of because they yes. wanted the same general style. So I looked at that film a lot and looked at stills from it and tried to absorb the look. And so I was able to emulate it. And I actually have a, uh, a history of when you're in art school, you end up doing a lot of artist studies where you paint from Norman Rockwell or N.C. Wyatt or other artists you really like. And so it's kind of a fun exercise to practice working in another artist's style and technique because it can help you improve your own personal technique. Even if you, even if you don't end up uh, drawing and painting like that person exactly, it's still something that you can add to your uh, visual language. And uh, so since I've done a lot of studies of other artists' work, it was kind of a, you know, it wasn't as hard for me to pick up uh, the style of the film because uh, I was used to being adaptable and sort of changing up my style to fit certain expectations. Wow. Would you do it again? Oh, yeah, heartbeat. I loved it. It was great. It was like a lot of work, a lot of labor, eight-hour days, which I'm not used to as a freelance artist, you know, getting up and working for eight hours straight and, you know, uh, for whatever, I think it was like about three or four months uh, total. Uh, so it was kind of grueling in that sense, but I got a lot of discipline out of it. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, it was great to be part of that. And uh, I was really happy with the end result. And I would love to work in something like that again. Did you work Were from you home? Oh, that was my question. <laughs> yeah. Were you were, were you working from home or did you work in the studio when you worked on this project? Yeah, no, what was great, I got to work from my home studio. Everything was done remotely. We with just file sharing and Zoom meetings and chats, we uh got all the work done uh, because there's people all over the world that were uh working on this. I guess it's sort of a remnant from the uh pandemic still or just the fact that uh you can do that now and you don't really have to have everyone in a single building to get uh, movies done anymore. Did you get to go into the studio at all? Did you travel there at all just to meet um, with the team or anything or no? No. Yeah. Like I said, everything's done on just uh, groups, uh, chats and meetings like this. Uh, the studio's up in Montreal that I was working for. So uh, it would be a little far from me in Southern California. <laughs> but Montreal's so great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, depends on the time of the year. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I've been there in summer and winter. It's just as good either time. Okay. Uh Oh, I have a question for you. I know I do. And that is, that is, have you seen the movie? Have you seen Disenchanted? Yeah. Yeah. It came out on Disney Plus a few months ago mm -hmm. and we watched it uh, opening night. And uh, yeah, we really enjoyed it. It's a lot of fun. And did you point out the the frames or the, at least the scenes, probably not the frames, but the scenes that you worked on? Yeah, it was really annoying to watch it with me. I'm just like, oh, that's mine. That's mine. That's mine. <laughs> Now, see, I would want to I would want to know that. So I'll have to watch it and you'll have to tell me what scenes you. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, if anyone's watching it right now or right after this, I did a lot of the scenes in the chipmunk's house and uh, Giselle's house in the forest. So if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Very you know, I haven't I haven't seen Disenchanted and... yet. I've seen Enchanted, so Disenchanted is on my list because it was enchanting. It was. Mm -hmm. It's a it was. beautiful movie. But you teach caricature as well. Yes, That's you right. have uh you have your own uh Proco channel on YouTube and you've been teaching for quite some time. But I'd like to ask you how might a fine artist benefit from a course in caricature? Yeah, that's a good question. I've gotten that every now and then. Uh, when I first started teaching caricature at a brick and mortar art school, they had no caricature courses. It was a sort of unusual. It was a very traditional art atelier here in San Diego where they teach portrait drawing, painting, landscapes, color theory, anatomy. Uh, it's, I wouldn't say it's like academic and rigid, but it was a very realistic type of school. But they thought caricature would be a fun addition because the owner of the school, Jeff Watts, realized uh, caricature actually plays a part in traditional art quite a bit. And I've noticed it in my own, when I've done my own portraits, when I look at portrait art from great artists like John Singer Sargent uh, or realistic illustrators like Norman Rockwell, they all caricature just a little bit. To me, caricature is really just taking control of your subject and changing it slightly or a lot. It's just on a spectrum. Uh, but in portrait art, you might say elongate someone's neck to make them look a little thinner and taller or slim their cheeks down or make their eyes a little bigger or rounder, uh, depending on whatever ideal you want to go for. So, you know, when you want to flatter the subject, you're changing what you see in reality. And to me, that's caricature. Uh, so the type of caricature I do is for humorous purposes, but I could also, if I worked for, you know, comic books and I was drawing the Incredible Hulk, I'd be drawing a caricature of a bodybuilder physique because there's no human that really looks like the Hulk. The Hulk is a caricature of a, of a human bodybuilder. Uh, it's just not for funny purposes. It's for, you know, to make him look hyper-masculine. Uh, so the term caricature can be used, I think, loosely. It doesn't always mean someone with an unflattering, funny depiction of their face. It's just uh, changing your subject uh, consciously, not unconsciously. When you unconsciously change something, that's what I call a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to spell it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I think any artist can benefit from it because it gives you confidence to be able to manipulate your subject matter for the needs of the client. You know, working on a Disney film, you know, I didn't do the animated characters, uh, just did backgrounds, but character design is a lot of caricature where you're essentially simplifying and caricaturing humans based on, you know, an ideal or a, a goal that you have in mind to make them look extra cute or whatever it is the, the uh, intent is. There are also styles of caricature which i think gets past all of us who are not caricature artists there's portrait or definition satire comedy and grotesque can you delineate those differences for us verbally you know it's, it's tough because i think caricature is a just a flowing spectrum and there's no clear dividing line to, to decide what is one type of caricature and what's another you know sometimes i'll draw a very flattering caricature of person for a commission and they might think it's grotesque or it's ugly. And I think that's not ugly. It's just cute and funny. It's just really all in the eye of the beholder. Um, but I think you can group caricatures into certain categories for sure. Like uh, there's, you can do it from an abstract point of view where it's sort of a cubist thing where you're using geometric shapes or simplified lines to create a caricature. You can go hyper-realistic, sort of like my caricature of uh, Anthony for the podcast was 
I wouldn't say it's photorealistic, but it's definitely a realistic approach where I still pay attention to the anatomy that's there. And I don't stretch things so out of proportion that they're unrealistic anymore. Like I like to think of my caricatures as something that could be made into a 3D model or a sculpture, or it could exist in reality if it were to come alive somehow. Um, so that's the, that's my personal, that's what I like to see in caricature. And that's what I like to do. Uh, but yeah, there's, you know, the Mad Magazine style, which is heavily outline based, where it's just, you know, simplified coloring. Uh, it's, and it's far more for speed and instant readability. There's quick sketch character, which is like what I do at events, uh, which is, again, a simplification using cartoon outlines uh, and some simple coloring, too. Uh, but I feel, I'm always going back to sort of realism. I love shading my caricatures realistically, even when working live and I only have a few minutes to do it. I like to get the, you know, the contouring on the face and make it look semi-realistic so it sort of pops off the page in a three-dimensional way. Has anybody ever looked at a, a, a caricature that you've done of them and just guffawed or just, you know, was disgusted by what you gave them? Was anybody yeah. unhappy with what you did for them? Um, the vast majority are just tickled at it. They just chuckle or they smile. And that's enough for me. That's good. Now, if they don't like it, they're just kind of just give me a head tilt and go, hmm, okay. And they just move on. They don't ever really tell me if they don't like it. And it's, I think it tells more about the person than about my artwork. So I'm not, I don't, I let it brush yes. fall off my shoulder. Mm -hmm. I don't really take anything personally. I did get, okay. So I wasn't there in person, but I was commissioned by an agency to do a caricature of a particular famous talk show host. Uh, for an event that they were performing at. And and then the, my client, they loved it. They thought it was really funny. And uh, they ended up putting on all the signage, the tickets, the posters out in the parking lot. And when this comedian talk show host showed up at the event, apparently he did not like it at all and demanded they'd all be taken down. He thought he was being ambushed. He was very offended. Uh, so I heard that story secondhand. I don't know exactly how that transpired or how it was presented to him or what they told him ahead of time. You know, I don't like ambushing anyone or feel like they're being made fun of. I think it's all in good fun. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, apparently that person did not care for it. And I won't say who it is, but it was a well-known talk show host. Do you get who are who are your biggest critic? I, I imagine you don't get a lot of criticism, but is does it skew more men or more women? Hmm. Um, that's about equal. I mean, it depends on the events that I'm at, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, some events, it's just like all women sit down for some reason and the, the men in the crowd don't sit down. It's, it's kind of strange. I don't know why there's a certain phenomenon where it's just make maybe one friend after another or coworker at this event might get their friends to sit down with them and it starts a chain reaction. Uh, but, uh, as far as the reactions go, um, yeah, it's split. I mean, you know, there'll be very vain men who don't like their caricature, you can tell, and and some women who just love, you know, when I mess up their face and make it really funny. So it's, it's it really does defy expectations sometimes. You might think some group or type might be uh, more easily offended than others, and it's not. It's just really all over the map. Well, the fact that it really does um, depend on the person, it's a very subjective thing. I am definitely saying that I love mine because it does say a lot about the person when they don't like their own work. So I love mine. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I'm making any sense. So maybe I should just shut up. Uh, how is the Proco channel going for you? This is the channel that you use to teach caricature. How is that working for you? Oh, it's great. I'm really happy to be affiliated with Proco. Um, Stan Prokopenko was the artist who started that channel and he has 
Uh, he was a friend of mine from the art school here in San Diego. He was a teacher there as well. And he left the school and went out on his own to do uh, uh, just his own artwork and ended up doing some online tutorials that got really popular. And then he started turning them into videos and it grew and ballooned into sort of this online art school and where he teaches head drawing, portrait drawing, anatomy. And he asked me uh, to join in and be, uh, to start the first, I was the first guest instructor for the site basically. And he asked me to teach my caricature course. And it took several years of writing, drawing, filming, planning uh, before the course was actually ready. But it's, yeah, it's out there now. There's uh, basically all of the videos are free on YouTube. Well, I would say there are free versions of the course on YouTube that people can watch. And if they want to get the premium course and pay a little bit, it's not too much money. It's like less than a hundred bucks, I think, for this entire course uh, for or for half the course. I'm not sure what they're charging right now. I don't work on that side of things. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's uh, really great to be affiliated with them because they produce such high quality art instruction videos. Uh, and I gave all my basically all my footage, all my drawings and demos to them and they edit together. I go into their studio to record segments where I'm talking on the camera, introducing each segment. And it makes me look really good because he has a whole team of people that edit, that add special effects, uh, 3D renderings of things sometimes. This, there's this animated skeleton that it's its own character on Proco Channel. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy with uh, the results. And I'm actually working on a new course with him right now. It's in the middle. It's I've been working on it for a couple of years. I'll probably be working on it for a couple of years more, but it's not caricature. It's a different subject matter. And I don't really want to reveal anything about it right now because it's not the time. But uh, it's another subject matter that I taught at the uh, old art school. We'll have you back for that. Yeah. Can you teach I, somebody who has absolutely no drawing ability? You know, I don't. Is, is there hope for those of us that really <laughs> suck? Yeah, I've had students of all <laughs> levels, that's for sure, who have either tried to, you know, took and caricature courses from me. And sometimes their progress is much slower in the beginning. It's going to be kind of an uphill battle. Uh, to get just rudimentary things down, like the fundamentals. And, but uh, with anything you learn in life, whether it's art or music or any kind of skill, it's really what you put into it and the time and the hours that you devote to actually putting these lessons into effect that you're going to see the results. I, I make the analogy of um, uh, like working out in the gym. You can watch workout videos and see how to do the exercises, but you're not going to personally get more fit or stronger or bigger muscles, unless you actually do the exercises yourself, mm -hmm. even though you know how to do them, you really need to put them into practice. So I've seen great results from people that came from almost zero training and then other people who, you know, maybe were even more advanced who didn't go very far with it because maybe they didn't put in the time with caricature in particular to get better at it. They just maybe practiced a little bit, toyed with it, but never really developed it. And that's okay. Maybe it wasn't their thing, mm -hmm. uh, but it's, yeah, it's all about how much effort you put into mm -hmm. The, uh, the 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 lessons like at home, basically doing your homework. You are a working artist, right? You don't do anything else to make an income. What if anything keeps you up at night mm. as a working artist? Well, it is kind of strange. The you know my all my income is freelance since the year 2000, 2001. I haven't worked for any company or anything. It's just been uh, solo. And I just have always had faith that the next job will come in. I'll make enough you know, income to pay the bills. It's just a, a positive attitude, I think. Uh, I, I believe a bit in manifestation, You know, just thinking about what you want and it kind of the universe presents it to you. If you stay positive and keep on things, keep up your skills, 
be ready for opportunity when it knocks. So you don't want to waste that opportunity. Um, so it's, it's a matter of also, you know, not just work, but just staying positive, I guess. So I, I try not to think about it or let things stress me out as far as, you know, making a freelance living. Uh, because history has shown me so far that I can do it. I have been doing it and it gets better every year. More opportunities, the more contacts you have, the more people you meet, the bigger network of people you're part of uh, makes your situation that much stronger. So um, whatever I think about late at night, it's not uh, worrying about my job anyway. It's just I, I do have faith uh, that it's uh, always going to be there for me. And uh, and if it doesn't, then I can sort of branch out into do something else, maybe portrait art or landscape mm -hmm. art might be something I could get involved in. So staying um, flexible and adaptable also really helps. I was going to ask you that question exactly, uh, how much it helps that you are so versatile and you can play in a variety of styles and genres. Yeah, I, 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 okay. I like to, I like to say the more hats you wear, the more money you make. And that seems to be true for you, Court, as well, because yeah. you can change your hat based on, you know, what the goal of the, of the, uh, the work is. It, yeah. Yeah. That, uh, it really hit home too during the pandemic when live events were just suspended for a couple of years, a year or two. Uh, and that was the main way I was making my living. Um, I ended up doing a lot more commissions and illustrations. I don't know how the people found me during that time, but I guess everyone was sort of inside their own homes doing their own projects. And maybe they had ideas for books that, you know, and then they contacted me about a book cover. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that everyone else was in the same situation helped me out in that sense. We ended up also doing a lot of, um, you know, people in my field ended up doing uh, caricatures remotely over Zoom for people's, you know, Zoom meetings during the entire pandemic. So I had quite a few corporate clients who would have their weekly mixers or whatever they wanted a caricature artist for an hour or two. And that was the method of delivery changed. But the, the thing I was doing was the same, the digital caricatures. In fact, it's kind of funny. The fact that I was doing digital caricatures at events live for years prepared me to do them remotely over zoom because it's essentially the same techniques the same software i'm just in front of a camera instead of uh instead of in front of the crowd um and then of course the teaching career on the side uh i wouldn't say it's on the side it's actually a big part of my career having that uh, passive income too from the art course that i have was really helpful and again it wasn't planned i didn't plan on that happening it's just i followed my passions i did the things that i wanted to do and took opportunities like the course being offered to me, like, hey, let's do an art course on my on my online art school court. And I'm okay. I took that opportunity when it came up. And I'm so glad I did because it was really helpful to have that additional income during uh, difficult times during the pandemic. Uh, and then of course, the, the uh, painting, the oil painting, the fine art stuff, I just do that kind of for fun. I sometimes sell them in galleries. Uh, it's not a huge source of income for me, but it the fact that I did a lot of landscape painting out of passion led to me getting this uh, background painting job for this animated film, which was, you know, pretty financially beneficial to me as well. So you never know where you're going to end up. Just, mm -hmm. I say, just keep following the things that make you happy, the things that are fulfilling, the things that get you excited and the work will find you. It's just once people know you do these different things, uh, they'll, they'll come to you when you least expect it. How much do you do have, oh, go ahead. How much do all the other styles inform your caricature work all the other styles that you paint how how do they inform your caricature work if they do i think when i'm doing like in particular my uh painted illustrations like for your podcast illustration they have a realistic almost an 
oil painted type feel. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I was traditionally trained with like oils and watercolors gave me a certain level of aesthetic that I look for, or that I strive for in my digital work or in my caricature work. And if I was just purely a digital artist, very narrowly focused, I think my work would have a different feeling or look. Um, but the fact that I'm experienced in a lot of different styles from realistic to caricature, uh, it, it everything infects everything else in my art. It, it bleeds over, I guess. Mm. So, and I think makes it stronger because I'm not just so narrowly focused in one little area. Uh, I can bring my different world experiences and my different art you know, techniques and methods into my caricature work. And I think it makes it that much more rich or diversified or uh, allows me to be diversified or to, to change things up on the fly when I need to. Because every now and then I do get actual clients who say, hey, we would love a Norman Rockwell style painting for this. And, you know, we see you have a few on your website that you've done. Can you do one for us? You know, again, it's just following a passion and it leads to more opportunity because people see that, I guess, and it attracts them. Do you like one style over the other, digital versus um, pen and ink? I know you don't really do uh, traditional, the pen and ink uh, caricature uh, anymore, but it's just as far as your any kind of artwork. Do you look, prefer digital or actual well, oils? Always, yeah, I almost always go to digital, you know, my tablet drawing when I have a job because it's just so uh, it's much faster, cleaner and revisions and edits can be made on the fly much easier than working in traditional media. So it just makes way more sense. Uh, it's very practical and I can get any look that I want. I can do a lot of, uh, you know, cheats or get textures in there or uh, drawing guides that you can apply in these digital painting programs that help you get to the end goal faster, which means you can do more work and accept more client work. Uh, but with that said, my passion really is, I think with oil painting, traditional painting, I love creating a physical object that you can hang on the wall and it's much more precious because there's only one of them you know with the digital painting it's just a file and it can be printed multiple times but it's nice to have that just original painting that uh, you have a physical connection with I guess it's just uh, more real and uh, not to disrespect digital painting at all it's definitely still a real art form but there isn't a physical product unfortunately mm -hmm. and one of the practical considerations of that is you can't really sell a digital painting well, in the old days, you couldn't. Now with NFTs, I guess you could actually sell the, you know, an NFT of a digital painting and make a lot of money on it. If that market's still up, I think it's kind of crashed. But um, it's always nice to have an original oil that you can sell a collector. Like I, I've done stuff for uh, uh, like Wizards of the oh no, Wizard Blizzard Entertainment, which uh, they did the World of Warcraft, and they have all these little trading cards of these fantasy scenes of characters like you know warriors and dragons and things. And I did one of those and. Uh, you know, some people remember that. That's like one of their favorite cards. And a collector approached me a year ago and bought the original from me because I did paint that one in oils because I had a little bit of free time to do it. I didn't have to really rush it. So I opted to do it in oils on a, on a canvas. Wow. And so, you know, 10 years after I made the original, I was able to, you know, sell it in the secondary market and make a little extra money on it. Mm. It made someone happy with uh, owning an original piece of art. That's wow. cool. Now, you're a master member of the International Society of Caricature Artists, the ISCA, uh, which has a code of conduct, uh, and they uphold the highest standards of professionalism and integrity uh, within the caricature world. Uh, do you find that being a member helps to uh, elevate 
your uh, your work, your career? Uh, has it helped you in any way other than the awards that you've received? Yeah, you know, the awards, you know, haven't really, I don't think personally affected me too much because not many people know what a golden nosy is, but it's a, uh, you know, I'll actually show it to you right now. The listeners can't see it, but it's a uh, gold trophy shaped like a nose. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Uh, a very and, uh, a large protruding nose. Yeah, it's actually based on one of the members who originally designed it off of his own nose. So lovely. Yeah. So um, anyway, yeah, the award's called the Golden Nosey, uh, and it's nice to get have on your website or on your resume that you're an award-winning artist. Uh, maybe that does influence some people when you're applying for a job or if they're considering to hire you for a, an event. But uh, yeah, I'd say the more practical benefit of uh, belonging to a trade organization like that is the networking and mm -hmm. the uh, friendships you get out of it. I met a lot of people who were actually uh, agents, you know, around the country ended up being listed on their sites because they knew me through this organization where we'd meet every year and have an annual convention. It's a very social type thing, but if there's a lot of competition where we're drawing against each other and we put our work up on the wall and judge it at the end of the week. And that's what that competition is where I won the golden nosy. And, uh, but yeah, I met friends and colleagues that I still am, you know, I do work with and I'm personal friends with. Uh, ended up getting the opportunity to actually travel uh, because of the organization. I, I met uh, an artist there from Japan and Korea, a different artists who uh, brought me out to their retail operations to help work with their artists and train them. So I got to spend a couple of weeks in uh, in Japan and in, uh, Korea. Uh, also, a couple of years ago, I went to Austria. I don't know if that was necessarily through my connections with ISCA, but I knew a lot of the same people from that organization who were putting on this small caricature convention in Vienna, and I got to do a little guest speaking uh, uh, bit there. So yeah, it's, it's offered me the opportunity to travel and meet a lot of people, increase my network in the professional you know, gig party community. And uh, yeah, that's definitely been a huge benefit. I wouldn't uh, have, I'm so glad I joined <laughs> Uh, anything like that that can help because there's it's the only one in the world that I know of that does caricature the only group that uh, specializes in promoting the art of caricature is it a large membership do you know I'm not sure what it currently is it's probably a range of four or five hundred people around the world uh maybe more it, it wavers from year to year and the convention always gets you know 100 150 people uh most years so when you're looking at other caricature artists work do you um and you're and you're uh, you know you're looking with a very um, uh, critical eye. What what are you looking for, and and what are some of the things that would uh, would separate a a really good caricature from one that isn't so good? Well, I have my you know my teacher's hat that I put on when someone's trying to improve their own skills in caricature. What I try to do is personally find out from them what their goals are, like what they want to do with caricature, what style they're going for, because someone who wants to be a quick sketch artist might have different needs as a student than someone who wants to be a, a painter or an illustrator doing realistic stuff. So there's different levels of advice I would give to people and, uh, and different things that are a problem that aren't a problem for other fields, like if they're not good at realistic coloring that's okay if they just want to be a live quick sketch artist. It's not that critical. But if you want to be a painter and an illustrator, you definitely, I have different standards that I look for in someone's work. 
Um, I have a lot of, you know, experience judging other artists too, you know, from the ISCA, from the caricature organization at the annual convention, because every year I go, you know, we all put our work on their wall, like I said, and we all judge each other. We all try to rate the best in different categories. And it's really difficult because everyone's painting and drawing so differently. There's people that do abstract caricature, people that do black and white, color, realistic. Uh, some people do caricature sculptures. And it's how do you weigh one style against another? Uh, we do have these individual categories that helps, but then you have to decide who's the best overall, like the top 10 of the year. And on some level, it's a gut reaction, like how much it makes you laugh, I think. And if the in, if the likeness is instantly recognizable, that's a good sign. It's a good caricature. It doesn't matter the style or how well it's rendered or how if it's sloppy or if it's neat. Um, those are, I guess, my main criteria for uh, judging good caricature is is uh likeness and recognizability and humor and then i think style and technique and uh, the level of finish is is sort of the third concern in all of that so it's difficult to judge but that's i guess how i break it down when i look at other people's work is how well did they achieve the goal of making it a caricature regardless of uh, any other considerations in these competitions is there ever a time when you're doing a caricature of the same face yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, there's people that, that attend the convention that are sometimes very interesting looking folks, and all the other artists want to draw them, uh, whether it's they're just naturally interesting looking or they have a funny outfit that they wear every day at the at the convention. But uh, yeah, so you'll see sometimes 40 or 50 depictions of the same person over and over, and that can actually help in the judging process when you're trying to figure out who's the best of the year, like who captured this really funny looking person the best, and uh, those are really fun to compare and contrast because people can draw the same person a hundred different ways, a thousand different ways, and they can all look like the person, even though their the approach is completely different from each other. So that's what's really fascinating about caricatures. There never is just one right answer to drawing a person's face. It's very open. Uh, it's a lot of possibilities. But if you're doing a realistic portrait there's only one way to do that really mm -hmm. if you mess up the position of the eyes on a portrait it doesn't look like them anymore but with caricature you can put the eyes in 100 different places and it can still look like the person if the artist did their job and made all the relationships uh, work within each other so caricature is really about rearranging the features into relationships that work regardless of the actual proportions of the original person's face it's it's weird it's it's a very kind of a hard thing to learn in the beginning i think it's even harder to master but uh yeah there are people that do it so well that i'm just floored all the time when i go to these conventions and see people's work like doing things i never would have thought of doing um like a, a good example is uh there's one artist who liked to draw people as houses like they would actually draw a house but it would look just like the person the windows would be the eyes the door would be the mouth and the way that they put these proportions together it's like oh i know exactly who that is <laughs> It's really strange how the mind works and how can it, the mind can interpret different shapes to make a face out of it. But that's what we're naturally, I think our brains are designed to do. We see faces and we recognize faces. That's one of our strengths. That's why we're so, um, uh, that's why our faces are so mobile. We have so many facial muscles to control expressions to, because all of our communication is done visually through our uh, the minor, minor movements on the face. This is also very interesting and it makes me wonder if we shouldn't be trying to do more specific types of caricature art at our events you know you just mentioned the the, the faces uh being turned into houses or houses being turned into faces 
And uh, it just, of course, my mind goes to real estate companies and the fact that that could be mm -hmm. something that uh, would work very well for them. So it makes me wonder what else is there that we've just not touched upon yet with you, Court, that could actually be marketable. Yeah. The trick, though, would be to be able to do it quickly. Like some of the stuff we do at the conventions, it takes right. a certain artist hours to do one face. So it wouldn't always be practical to do really, really crazy stuff live at events. But we have done things that, like I've seen other artists work uh, and, you know, my own work where I've gotten requests to do things like uh, pixel art caricatures, where I work in just a low res digital file to make like a Nintendo style caricature where it's really simple and blocky. I've done um, sort of fine art sketchy caricatures where it's more like I draw with a digital pencil tool where they want to see the brush strokes or the pencil strokes and the messiness. And that's kind of the appeal of it. It just depends on the nature of the event, I guess. Uh, the style can be changed up a little bit, but speed and like the entertainment of the performance is always mm -hmm. a main concern of mine. So I don't, there's this limit to how much you can do in a, in a live event. I think I can't do like illustrated style painted caricatures uh, in a short amount of time. Right. Really entertaining. <laughs> but sometimes those small tweaks can turn it new again for, mm -hmm. a, for a group that might think, oh, you know, that's something we've done in the past and people are just kind of tired of it. Well, you may not have tried it this way and it just adds a new spin and makes it relevant again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Digital Something allows is, a lot of flexibility as far as the technique and the finish you can have on it. I think our conversations have to be more specific when we call you just to mm -hmm. see. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe not, but maybe there is, you know? So um, Alex mentioned in your intro that you're drawing caricatures uh, from a database of children with rear genetic disorders for a research team. I'd love to know more about that work and uh, A, how you got into it and B, exactly what it is you're doing. Yes, yeah, so a few months ago, I was approached by um, some scientists from a university in Germany who had the idea of maybe caricature could be used to help train clinicians and an AI software uh, to better recognize uh, facial abnormalities in patients. This is kind of a sensitive subject to talk about. I, you know, it's, it's it's interesting that they went this way with caricature because people associate caricature with ridicule and humor and making fun of people. And uh, to me, that's not what caricature is all about. Anyway, it's really about entertainment and finding just, you know, making a drawing of someone that looks more like them than they look like themselves. It's just taking what makes them them and making those things more obvious. And I think this uh, researcher found my... Uh, online tutorial videos on the Proco YouTube page. And that's how he came into finding my work. And he liked how I talked about it. He liked my lessons and how I broke down how to, you know, teach how to draw the face. And I, so the, how he presented it to me is he said, there's over a thousand recognized uh, dysmorphologies, he called it, you know, different syndromes uh, that all have different uh, uh, manifestations on like the face and body of the patient. Uh, it might be just the size of the earlobes or the length of the distance between the nose and the mouth or the shape of the eyelids or how arching the eyebrows are. Um, and it's sometimes really subtle stuff. And clinicians who deal in this sort of uh, field, you know, they don't necessarily have a huge database in their brains of how to identify all 1,200 of these different types of recognized syndromes. They may be good at identifying a few of them but they want to be able to get better at diagnosing them early on because there might be treatments available. So they're training AI to recognize these uh, different facial traits. Uh, and it's having a hard time because it's, you know, 
it, it's just something that's learning. I don't really know how it all works. I talked with some of the uh, programming people on the software side of things and uh, got advice on the best type of images to use, you know, what it's looking for, you know, it's looking for different contrast with, you know, uh, you know, it recognizes where eyes are and where noses are. So I realized I had to draw these characters in a certain style that would be easily recognizable when a computer's looking at it. Um, yeah, I'm getting into the weeds a little bit here, but it's uh, basically yeah, just, yeah, they, they, they give me access to this database of these uh, children with different um, recognized conditions. And I tried to caricature that condition, or maybe there's one good photo to work from that exemplifies all the conditions or all the different facial traits that represent this disorder. And, uh, and he's actually taking my drawings and taking them to different colleagues and asking them if they recognize this syndrome, because I'm making these facial traits more obvious than they appear on the original subject. You know, if, if, if a certain trait is, say, large ears is, is a common trait for this uh, thing, it's, that's something that goes into the caricature. But it's it's the whole what they call the gestalt, the the effect of all of the features working together that uh, helps someone identify these conditions. So making these traits more obvious to the viewer is what I'm doing, and it's what I think might help uh, these people get better at identifying these rare disorders. Which there's sometimes not a huge database. There's sometimes maybe only a dozen good photos. Uh, of this rare condition. And I tried to pick up on what those traits are, those common traits from all these different photos and create a caricature out of that. And it's it's a little bit sensitive of a subject, but yeah, I've, I've been enjoying it and it's been very rewarding to hear the reaction so far. Is it fair to say that it helps because those manifestations grow as the child grows? So you're helping the clinicians discover the issue before it's gotten worse yeah in most this, cases oh sorry go ahead no i i'm, I'm wondering if i'm if i'm hitting hitting it on the head exactly yeah, actually, how this helps something I, I discovered in seeing most of the photos that i have access to are very young children toddlers up to the age of seven or eight there's some adult photos but yeah certain things manifest much later like the shape of the skull may change as you age it's not necessarily obvious when they're really young mm. so I've been trying to do subjects as young as possible because that's when I think these diagnoses can help the children most uh, because there's certain conditions where, you know, the skull may deform over time if, you, if it's not properly treated. And that can help if they get it addressed early. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not always obvious. A lot of children look uh, very similar to each other when they're born, even with all these disorders. It's not until they get a little bit older that these changes start to really become more obvious as their faces get more individualized. So, yeah, there is a cutoff. I mean, I can't really draw like infants, I think with these uh, different conditions, it's always, you know, probably age three to four and above uh, is usually the target uh, caricature age range for this project. Which is when I would assume that most of them start to become apparent. Uh, yeah. Most of the issues start to become apparent at that point, I would imagine. Because yeah, we're not talking about birth defects, which are obviously very apparent when the child is born. Yeah, and some some conditions, some disorders do manifest right at birth. I mean, you can tell um, that, um, that there's a difference. Yeah, there. Uh, but yeah, that's for the most part, it's mostly uh, you know uh, manifests a little bit later. Uh, but uh, yeah, and then I always ex experience the same kind of thing when I'm actually drawing any child or baby. When I when was, I've done caricatures for over 26 years, and I always have a tough time drawing babies because they all sort of look alike, <laughs> right. really, really young, right? Um, and uh, 
and the parents will say, oh, it looks just like him. And I'm like, okay. If you say so. <laughs> I guess I picked up on something that was about the baby, but that baby looks just like that baby. You know? well, that's not the only interesting work that you do. You also have tutored police forensic sketch artists who thought learning caricature could help them better capture likenesses in their sketches. What was the theory behind that work? Yeah, um, and it was just two individual artists who actually didn't know each other just approached me about tutoring separately. And uh, when they said what they did, I'm like, oh, that'd be great to help you. I wonder if I can help you. We'll see. So we did some private instruction. And when I worked with them, I focused more on the the idea of uh, heightening the likeness, not so much the humor of the sketch, because that won't really help them when they're doing their police sketching. Um, but things like I would help them figure out how to take distinctive traits that a witness describes uh, for them and how to make those traits more obvious and more clear in the drawing, just through sort of trial and error. And that was actually an exercise I developed when training theme park artists was what I called the police sketch. This was before I even worked with uh, these forensic artists later on, um, where I would just train theme park artists to do, uh, we'd have different, we had like two weeks of training when we brought new artists into the theme parks. And one of the exercises I thought was pretty valuable was or um, verbally describing the subject. I would look at a photo of someone, none of the trainees could see who I was um, looking at, and I would describe them. I'd start with the head shape, and I'd go, oh, this person has a long head, and there's a person in there, you know, in their 60s, and it's male, uh, and they have sort of a small chin, but uh, large ears. You know, I would just go down the list of how I would draw it in my own head, and and they would draw it what they think I was describing. And most of them successfully got a sketch and they knew who it was. And I would pick celebrities, you know, like Albert Einstein or Marilyn Monroe or something. So it was kind of easier. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was an exercise I developed because it's it really shows how character is done in the head, not really on the paper. It's what mm -hmm. you think you want to change about the subject. Yeah, it's just the execution is done on paper usually, but uh, the character is all done mentally. So you don't really need to look at the subject. Uh, and I told that to the forensic sketch artists, or the police sketch artists, and that seemed to, you know, that seemed to resonate with them really well because that's what all they do. And I discovered working with them too that why their sketches look a certain way. You know, I would always see those sketches on the news and say, "Wow, that looks like it could be just about anybody." Why it's so vague looking? It doesn't really look like a real person. And they said, "Yeah, we have to draw them in this sort of vague, generalized way because." The artist is trying very hard not to insert their own interpretation of what they think the subject is describing, uh, because it may veer off wildly because the artist doesn't want to add their own imagination to it. Uh, they want to just go off what the, subs the, the witness is describing. So with that in mind, though, I was wondering why they wanted to do caricature, because caricature is all about changing what the uh, subject or the objective data is telling you and changing it to, to get it more... Um, it will exaggerate it to make someone's likeness look more apparent by changing certain things. So I don't really know if it ended up benefiting them or not. I hope it did. I think it creeped into their work a little bit, uh, even though the sketches ended up not being, you know, funny, which that wasn't the goal anyway. Mm. Um, but I, ho I hope it did have some kind of positive effect on, on their work and hopefully brought some suspects to justice. I hope so too. I think it's just so fascinating how many different ways you can use caricature and Never for a second did I think it was something that was easy, but I never knew how nuanced it, it is and can be. Yeah. It's really, really cool. I wish I could do it. <laughs> you know, I love the fact that whenever I can educate people about what caricature is and isn't, you know, whether it's just one-on-one -on -one at an event where I hear overhear someone say, 
oh, caricature. That's where they make uh, choose one feature and make it bigger. And I just I put my it's like a palm slap. <laughs> no. no, it's not that. Come on, it's 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 changing what you see about the subject to make what makes them look like themselves more apparent. It's making them look more like themselves, and it's way more than just changing one feature. You're changing all the relationships to the features mm. to each other for a humorous effect and making it still look like the person. But it's not a formula. There's no just like magic bullet that says you can do this every single time and it'll look like the person. Because mm. to me, that's you know borders on what I call distortion. Some caricature artists end up are just, they're just distorters. They arbitrarily change something like automatically always giving someone wide jawline. It's just some people have these habits. If they're poorly trained artists, they don't maybe look at the person and look at them as an individual and they just kind of rubber stamp their their drawings and they just kind of do the same thing for mm. everyone. And it's just an artificial distortion and not true exaggeration. There's a difference between distortion and exaggeration. Distortion is lying. An exaggeration, I think, is telling the truth like, brutally. <laughs> brutally. <laughs> brutally. <laughs> I'll remember that when I look at my caricature. Uh, now, you drew awake, which I thought, or you drew at awake, I should say, which fascinated me. And not just any wake, you drew at the wake of Tammy Faye Mesner, AKA Tammy Faye Baker. So, again, I ask you, what was the theory behind this? <laughs> well, that was the, the event planner, I guess, or, well, I think it was Tammy Faye herself, who, before she died, uh, she said her wake, she wanted a big party with all of her friends. She wanted to be very fun and lighthearted, where they would celebrate life and not be moping and sad. So uh, her manager threw it. It, ended up, it was up in um, Palm Springs, where she lived, I guess, at the time, and uh, just a house party. And yeah, all of her friends and some celebrities were there, and it was a good old time. There were people just uh, enjoying themselves, sharing stories, and I was there to help sort of raise the spirits of people. Mm. Uh, yeah, there were some interesting uh, folks there. There was, uh, I drew a uh, Cloris Leachman, uh, the actress was there. Oh, yes. I got to talk to her a little bit. Some uh, actress from Dallas, I can't remember her name. <laughs> um larry king showed up he didn't get a caricature but he made a short little speech and uh the adult film star ron jeremy was in attendance <laughs> wow what did you draw <laughs> what did you he exaggerate on him no, yeah so nothing. they were i guess they knew each other from a reality show they were on together and wow uh, and i uh and he he seemed pretty charming um i think he's in trouble now but um, <laughs> um uh, he, uh yeah he seemed to like his caricature although he threatened to kill me when he saw it in a joking way <laughs> But it was a good reaction. It wasn't like bad. It was like, oh, I'm going to kill you. You know, okay. <laughs> but that was kind but of you're still here, so he hasn't. No, no. Good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very good a, thing. Yeah, it was a fun, weird thing, a weird event to attend and draw. Just like, one from the celebrity factor, and two, the fact that it was somebody's wake. I've never drawn at a memorial for anybody uh, ever since. It uh, sounds like something I'm, I, I might consider. Me too. Absolutely. Yeah, and this was a woman who was made fun of for her look on many mm -hmm. occasions. So that's why I was perplexed as to why it, it was actually done at her way, because it seemed like it could be taken as a slight. Mm -hmm. But apparently it's something that she was in favor of. And, and that says a lot about her sense of humor. Yeah, apparently she had a great sense of humor and she leaned into it. She realized, you know, the heavy eye makeup she was known for became mm -hmm. her sort of trademark and... Uh, uh, in fact, I think her, uh, the cake, they had a cake that was designed like designer handbags and makeup kits were, it was all made out of cake and fondant. Fun. Yeah. So it was just, yeah, the makeup thing was very, uh, they had a nod to it, I think. Mm. And they had me do a caricature of her from a photo. I did that one first and they hung it up and, uh, you know, so she was sort of watching over the, uh, the, the events. Nice.
So before we get into our last segment, I, I do I just feel like I need to comment on something you said earlier when you were talking about the talk show host who did the live event and you did a caricature and they plastered it everywhere and he felt like he was ambushed. I just I would like to comment on that because he was ambushed and that really wasn't your fault as the artist. You did your job. But the planner in that case made a big mistake in that she didn't get that approved before it was or he before it was plastered everywhere. And that I have to mention is a huge mistake in our world. You can't do that. You know, celebrities have uh, PR agents and they want their image to be reflected in a certain way and to just plaster something up there. Even though the guy, I'm sure, has a great sense of humor and the ability to laugh at himself, it's just not the right thing to do. It's not appropriate. Yeah, so I just well, well said. I think that's true. I just wanted to bring that up. So now that I've gotten my tirade <laughs> out in the open, it's time to do something we call the Bellotified Five. The Bellotified Five. Okay, are you ready, Court Jones? These are five questions. All right. First thing that comes to mind. What is your golden rule? Always be true to yourself and don't sell yourself short. Great, great words of advice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. What's one daily habit you have you strongly believe contributes to your success? Something you do every day. Making my bed. Even though it's boring and annoying, it's really important to do that because it's just something that makes life a little bit better when you walk into that room the rest of the day and you see the bed made. It's very uh, indicative of, I think, your attitude towards life. You know, just make the bed, get, get it ready. I think I you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. You for really sure. Are. It's the first thing Alex does when she gets very up. Very first morning. thing. Before coffee, before anything. Anything. That is first made. thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, when no one is listening, what are the things you tell yourself? Hmm. Uh, just don't give up no matter what life throws at you. It's, it can be periods in your life where things are going to be slow or, uh, sad or frustrating or hard to deal with. It's only temporary and You've gotten this far in life so far, so don't worry about it. It will pass. Thank you for that. It's not always easy, but it'll pass. Uh, what's one change you'd like to see in the world? I would like people to be more honest with each other and not posture so much or try to protect their egos or self-interests and just be a little bit more open about your intentions and what you really want and try not to delude yourself about things. And I'm thinking about society and politics. It's just, you know, it's kind of a thing that bugs me about, you know, you just see when somebody's being fake or when they're clearly lying. <laughs> How important is vulnerability with that? Um, I guess you got to make yourself vulnerable when you make yourself more open and honest. So yeah, it takes a little bit of uh, courage. Mm -hmm. It's probably the hardest thing to be is vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Very hard. So, Court, last question. What is your why? Why? Why do you do this? 
I want to leave something behind that makes people happy. I want to leave a little bit of beauty in this world, uh, even if it's with silly drawings. Well, they're not silly in the least. Oh, they're, they're wonderful. They're incredible. And and your artistry shows through in every single one of them. You are a, an accomplished artist, and it shows in every single piece that you make. So thank you very much for sharing your talents with us, for sharing your talents with our clients, and for your partnership and your professionalism. Uh, you are cream of the crop, Court Jones, yes. and we just love oh. being associated with you. Thank you for being on our show. Thank you so much. It's been great. Well, there'll be more for us, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll keep working together and creating fun events. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you for listening to Volatified. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe. And remember to leave us your questions or comments at bolada.com backslash podcast. Volatified is a production of Bolada Entertainment. Hey, that's a lot of Bolada. Stay engaging.